Welcome back to the Ancient World Podcast, where we look at the beauty and wisdom of the ancient times. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy the show. All right, everybody. So now we're back with a new episode. And today we have with us Sean from Texas, our good friend and mythology YouTuber with the channel Mythos and Logos. So Sean, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It is a pleasure. I love diving into the ancient world with all of your projects. And uh, well, for the upcoming series we have going on and some classic epics uh, that are the foundation of at least the ancient Western tradition, um, I think it's very fitting and I'm really excited for this. Yeah, I am also super excited. And thanks so much for taking the time as well. And I just, when you told me that you're making a three-part series now, three videos on the Odyssey, the Iliad, and uh, the Aeneid, and the way you're going to approach it, I was just super excited. So I think we're just going to start with that. Like if you, your thoughts about how you're going to do this and, and your approach to these epics. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So I, this actually started when I had quite some time ago uh, done an episode on Anchises, who is the father of Aeneas, mm. uh, subject of the Aeneid, Virgil's epic. And um, there's a scene that has really been coming back to me lately when during the Trojan War, Aeneas is on the Trojan side and when the, the famous or infamous Trojan horse uh, allows the Greeks to infiltrate the city and the city is burning, uh, Aeneas has to carry his father on Kisses out of the burning city. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is um, just such a powerful image in terms of it's the end of the world and he is going forward to try and create something brand new. And what is he going to um, create from it? Mm. And I'd had that in the back of my mind for quite some time, but Virgil writing the Aeneid was very much working in Homer's tradition of the Iliad and Odyssey, which had come before. And I've always enjoyed the Odyssey. One of my favorite stories. Uh, there's a, film version that was made in the 90s that would always be on late night cable TV on uh, in, here in the States. And oftentimes it was just so exciting and really opened up a lot of the world of these mythical, magical creatures and incredible journeys. And the Odyssey has always fascinated me. But the Iliad, the first of them, had al always been a little bit less approachable, mm -hmm. I found, at least for me personally. Mm -hmm. So, and the Iliad is long and it tells the story of a war, but it's interwoven between these various scenes of battle and of characters. And it had always been tough for me to find a narrative there and uh, going into it with the other two poems that I'm more familiar with, I kind of set the goal of let's understand this whole tradition using as a bouncing off point what I already do know. So that's kind of my mission going into this three-part series. Yeah, that's a great way of, of, of approaching it. I, I have a bit of the same feeling with Ilya that it's, uh, it's a long war. It lasts for 10 years and, and it's, not, it's more like an action-packed epic. Uh, I know they also sometimes said like the um, uh, Odysseus is... It's, it's more like the, the he goes on the journey. He's more the intellectual life in a sense. Well, mm. Achilles is more just like strength, war, and that action part of it. So uh, 
yeah so, so what have you found so far like what what are your uh, like highlights so far yes. in your discovery <laughs> absolutely so you're absolutely right that the action-packed kind of um idea was definitely my first impression and that made it a little hard to find the symbolism the emotional connections in my first impression but then what i did is went through uh from the beginning and the very introduction to the Iliad, it's not some battle scene. It's not invoking the muse to tell the Trojan War, even though it is the story of the Trojan War, but it is rage. Sing, goddess, the muse of Achilles' rage, black and murderous that cost the Greeks incalculable pain, pitched countless souls of heroes into Hades' dark, and left their bodies to rot as feasts for dogs and birds as Zeus's will was done. Begin with the clash between Agamemnon, the Greek warlord and godlike Achilles. Which of the immortals set these two at each other's throats? So from the very beginning, it's actually telling you itself what the subject of this poem is, mm. which is Achilles' rage, this emotion, this conflict of, his pride against uh, Agamemnon, who is the military leader of the Greeks, and Achilles, the greatest warrior, not just told through battle scenes or strategy, and it doesn't even start with the beginning of the war, but it starts with Achilles' anger and rage. Mm. So that's where I went to focus on thinking, okay, I wanted to really focus in on what is the emotional core of the Iliad? What is the, the rage that's driving it through? And what's the role of these gods when it says, which gods had, had put, this, uh, put this in their hearts? I find that a very interesting question to be asking. Mm. It's, I noticed in the Iliad, like wrath, is also very important. I mean, wrath sets the action in some sense into motion as well. Is the wrath of of the gods, whether of Juno, like the, the wife of Jupiter, who, well, she creates a storm. <laughs> she tries to to sink the fleet of Aeneas, and they have to seek refuge in Carthage in the north of Africa. And then and that's kind of the starting point. And then Aeneas tells the story. But but the wrath of Juno is kind of a question in the opening as well. Like what what caused it? Uh, but it's also, uh, you have a couple of, um, when he is, uh, so Aeneas, when he is fleeing from, or when Troy is burning down, he sees Helen. And he, in his view, Helen is the culprit of the whole war of Troy and kind of the reason for the fall of Troy. So he wants to kind of go after her and destroy her. And then he stopped and then you have the gods. And then his mother, Venus, intervenes. And tells him, like, calm down. There are more important things to do. Like, rein in your, your wrath. And I'm just mentioning it because it's, I've been so much into the, into the inferno and about your passions and your emotions in the first book of the comedy and how that is what like, the, the dangers with that and how half of inferno is about like unchecked emotion and, and passions run wild with any kind of balancing with reason. So that's, uh, that's the big warning in Dante and you also see it so clearly in the Aeneid like that's that the, the temperance part 
So you can tell it's a Roman story for sure. And yeah, it, it sounds very stoic in some ways. Um, exactly, but the maintenance of emotions, the self-control. Um, but I even find that that reminds me almost verbatim of something from, again, this first chapter of the Iliad. It mm -hmm. is um, so essentially the event that sets this off is um, Agamemnon, the warlord, the head general of the Greeks, uh, had taken a woman as a war prize who was uh, the daughter of a priest of Apollo. Mm -hmm. So the priest is saying, hey, can you please give her back? It's a ransom. It was really primarily historically done as, okay, we'll capture someone and treat them well, and then you can give us money to give them back to you. And that would be a lot of what perpetuated the war, what the funding was. Mm -hmm. um, but Agamemnon does not want to let her go. And it's thought of as a, um, a front against hospitality and against divinity and against the proper conduct of war. So Achilles uh, ends up convincing Agamemnon to let her go back to her father. And Agamemnon says, oh, okay, okay, but I'm going to take your war prize. Mm -hmm. And he goes to take uh, a woman that Achilles had had claimed going to a city. And it's uh, that is the rage, these two men fighting over their they're the spoils of war, so to say, that starts it. And there's a point in the very um, introduction here when they're arguing, and Achilles is ready to draw his sword and just attack Agamemnon on the spot. Uh, but then here it says, here we go. Achilles' chest was a rough knot of pain twisting around in his heart. Should he draw the sharp, sharp sword that hung by his thigh? scatter the ranks and gut Agamemnon, or control his temper, repress mm. his rage. He was mulling it over, inching the great sword from its sheath, when out of the blue Athena came, sent by the white-armed goddess Hera, who loved and watched over both men. She stood behind Achilles and grabbed his sandy hair. Visible to him, not another, saw not another soul saw her. Awestruck, Achilles turned around, recognizing Pallas Athena at once. It was her eyes and words flew from his mouth like winged birds. And then it says also on the eyes, Athena's eyes glared through the sea's salt haze. And she tells him to check his temper that Athena being a war goddess, but not in the way that Ares is, who's the, the battle, the combat. Athena is the wisdom, the strategy, mm -hmm. temperance and controlling yourself. And he says, when you speak, goddess, a man has to listen, no matter how angry. It's better that way. Obey the gods and they'll hear you when you pray. So in a way, that wisdom stops him from just acting out in his rage in the very beginning. And that, that sounds a lot like what you had just mentioned with Venus. in the Yeah, exactly. So this is very interesting. And then also, just for people who are not familiar with it, like, so, I mean, Homer writes the Iliad and then, the Odyssey, and then in the, um, Virgil, the Roman writer, 800 years or so afterwards, he just reverses the two books in a sense. He puts the journey first and then the war, uh, but he he um, kind of openly, explicitly draws from from Homer. So what how he describes almost the same scene, so it's like interesting to compare her, that uh, he sees Helen in kind of the, this collapsing, burning Troy, 
Uh, and then he says like that he wants to run after her and uh, he says it will be a joy to have filled full my soul with the fire of vengeance and to have seated the ashes of my kindred. Such words I blurted out and in frenzied mind was rushing on when my gracious mother, never before so brilliant to behold, came before my eyes in pure radiance, gleaming through the night, manifesting the goddess in beauty and stature, such as she's wont to appear to the lords of heaven. So this is again Venus or Aphrodite, who is uh, the mother of, of Aeneas. And then she says then with the roseate lips, my son, what resentment thus stirs ungovernable wrath? Why this rage? Or whither has thy care for me fled? Wilt thou not first see where thou hast left thy father, age-worn Anchises, where the Crucia, thy wife, and the boy Ascanius still live? So this is kind of her or <laughs> temperate um, influence on him, just like think think about the bigger picture and then uh, go and check on your family instead. So it's fun to hear how similar it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's very practical in many ways um, and has this very interesting idea that that has been discussed in a lot of different ways as well in terms of the gods acting upon people and how much free will there really is here. Um, yeah. there, are, there are so many times when the gods being these forces will, will give rage or give anger or give, uh, give calm and peace and hold someone back. And there's a question of who's really in control. The Greeks yeah. had a very strong idea of fate, very similar to the Norse in terms of, uh, you know, if, if you're going to die, the day of your death is determined by the gods and mm -hmm. whatever it is that's set in fate will set there. So many stories of people trying to avoid their fate that end up causing it as yeah. well. Um, think of Oedipus, for example. Yeah. But I mean, it's fascinating just... how much the gods seem to maybe be the ones in control <laughs> or the people. Yeah. I mean, this is a huge topic, like the, um, one of the other things, like the personal journey and then your personal journey in the bigger picture and the forces of the gods. And then re gradually realizing that you are not, you are not the goal of yourself. Like you have a role to play in a much bigger context. And then understanding this, I mean, in, in the Aeneid, this is very much kind of repeatedly coming back to Aeneas that he's, <laughs> because sometimes he wants to follow his own emotion, his own, um, he's very comfortable when he meets Dido in, in Carthage and wants to stay there and in the palace. Uh, but then the gods come, Zeus sends Hermes, the messenger, to tell him like, what are you doing? You, <laughs> you have a much bigger fate. You're supposed to go up to Latium and found the beginning settlements that would grow into Rome and the Roman Empire. Your, your personal happiness is not the main point there. You have to move on. So that's a, that's very much directly comes from, it's almost like you can hear Emperor Augustus <laughs> when he's talking with Virgil, like this is important to have in this epic that people understand that they're big, part of something bigger. And then that is something, if you understand it, it also gives your life more meaning. That's another one kind of element of that. Oh. So and that's so interesting in that we normally think of, at least in modern Western society, uh, that a, a goal of life is do what makes you happy. Yeah. Um, and he just did what made him happy, but that wasn't his destiny, was it? <laughs> exactly. 
it, it's a very important deep point in some of these epics um, that, and it's applicable, it's kind of relevant for today, how we think of ourselves even in your own life. Well, if you try to find, I will go into sidetracking slightly, but if you try to find meaning within yourself in just self-fulfillment, for example, it's just, um, it could be somewhat misleading almost because if you try to understand yourself in a bigger context, the meaning might be more evident immediately or you can see a role to play that is important. So it just stands out so much how, how much these old stories have to tell us today still. How, how much do you think that might fit into Virgil being Dante's choice of guide in the Divine Comedy? Oh, very good question. So, I mean, the comedy is a movement from the dark forest into the unifying with the divine at the last page of Paradise. So it's it's from being cut out from... Uh, from any context, and especially in Dante's view, like from the divine, but it's just like being isolated in a sense. And then the whole story is a movement towards understanding himself better, and then to start being more a part of the virtues, climbing the mountain of virtue, and then more into the like the divine, and ending up with full, like the theosis part, but like a full, uh, like dissolving and becoming a part of the love that, that moves the sun and the other stars. So that is a clear movement of kind of individualism towards being part of something bigger. Uh, but it's also interesting how he constantly has, he has guides, Virgil is two of the books, and then you have extra guides with Statius, and you have Sordello in the Purgatory, and then Beatrice. So there's also this kind of companionship in this process of understanding the bigger picture. So... Um, but I mean, it's a huge question. It's a brilliant question. <laughs> How and it, it seems like a question that's had the various answers and answer developed and changed from, I mean, Homer to the Aeneid six, 800 years after that. Exactly. To the comedy 1300 years after that. I was <laughs> and, thinking uh, about the same. And I think now with the 700 years after Dante, I was like, a part of me hopes that someday someone, maybe someone who's out there listening, will take take up kind of the pick of the mantle and try to write a new epic for our times. Yes, you know, we're just about due. Yeah, yeah. It's it goes in the cycle. Seven hundred years is a good cycle to to reformulate it in in our times. Um, it's also interesting though that like uh, Homer and and uh, Virgil, they write epics. This hexameter. Like, uh, and, and this very kind of uh, riveting storytelling. What Dante does is different, though. So he comes up, but he he summarizes things and he tells a story, but he doesn't. It's not an epic storytelling that he's doing. So, and then, but just to add one more thing about uh, the wrath part in in uh, Virgil, that uh, Aeneas, like it, the whole epic ends with an act of wrath, where the hero. Aeneas kills the other guy, the, the main villain. And that marks kind of the, <laughs> the end of the epic that, that explains the founding of the Roman Empire. So that's when there's no intervention. And then because he stands there, he threw a, a spear into Turnus, like the, the, main, the main villain, the main antagonist. And then he goes over to him and then Turnus starts to, to plead for his life. And it almost, almost convinces uh, Aeneas 
But then Aeneas sees this baldric, kind of band across the chest of Turnus that he took from uh, one of the, uh, the the main people on Aeneas' side as a war trophy. And it says there, like Aeneas, as soon as his eyes drank in the trophy, that memorial of cruel grief, fired with fury and terrible in wrath, art thou, thou clad in my loved one's spoils, to be snatched hence from my hands? It is Pallas, Pallas, who with his stroke sacrifices thee and takes atonement of thy guilty blood. So saying, full in his breast, he buries the sword with fiery zeal. And the other, other's limbs grew slack and chill, and with a moan, life passed indignant to the shades below. So that's this typical kind of end scene in a movie with a good guy and a bad guy. But then in this case, Aeneas just kills Turnus, and that's the end of it. So that's also how, like, you see wrath as an important part of the narrative. Uh, and it says something about the Roman. Yeah, especially that it ends on an episode of violence. That's the, mostly that's the middle of the Iliad, <laughs> whereas mm. it ends actually with the opposite, one of the few moments of peace and the war continues afterwards. But just to give a quick summary, um, so Achilles, he's so furious with Agamemnon, the king, that he refuses to fight. And the Greeks start losing because without Achilles, he's their best warrior, uh, they're not doing as well. And Zeus also favors the Trojans, so that doesn't help either on the Greek cause. Um, so as a trick, so to say, um, it's a little bit of a trick, a little bit of delegating his responsibility. He gives his and a lot of people debate the exact nature of the relationship, but we'll go ahead and just say beloved companion, mm -hmm. uh, Patroclus, his armor. And as Patroclus fight, tells him, okay, Patroclus, you're going to take my armor to scare the Trojans into thinking that I'm fighting. Push them back from our ships, but only go on defense. Don't chase after Hector, who's the greatest warrior of the Trojans. Um, but then Patroclus, he gets taken in by the, uh, he's almost like a berserker, to, to use that Norse connection. He mm -hmm. gets taken in by the battle and goes and fights and wants to chase them all the way back to the walls of Troy. And Patroclus ends up falling for that. Um, then after Patroclus dies, Achilles' rage is so much more where mm -hmm. before it was a, bit of a depression, feeling that war was pointless, if, if he would be disrespected, it becomes just such a sheer anger, um, where he goes and kills Hector and just is desecrating the body in revenge, uh, dragging him around the city walls on his chariot. And in the ending, book 24, the climax end of the story isn't a war, it's King Priam, king of the Trojans, goes to Achilles and gets on his knees and kisses Achilles' hands, says, um, Great Priam entered unnoticed. He stood close to Achilles, touching his knees. He kissed the dread and murderous hands that had killed so many of his sons. Passion sometimes blinds a man so completely that he kills one of his own countrymen. In exile, he comes into a wealthy house, and everyone stares at him with wonder. 
So Achilles stared in wonder at Priam. Was he a god? And Achilles is in awe that Mm. Priam is setting this aside. The two of them speak and share a moment of grief. Achilles grieving for Patroclus, Priam grieving for his own son. And um, they share this moment, and it's right after Achilles holds Patroclus' funeral. He gives Priam Hector's body back so he can have a proper burial Mm. and a proper funeral as well. And the war's not over. The Trojan horse hasn't even happened. But that is the ending. It's a funeral. Mm. Just a brief moment of setting the rage and emotion aside. And I I do wonder what that might say about um, Greek and Roman cultural differences or or differences in the focus of the Aeneid being a national epic and the Iliad, which really has such a grand scale, but is very focused on an individual. Mm. There's a, there is a a somewhat related uh, little pause in the fighting in the, the Aeneid as well, where they just stop the slaughter to give, to give the fallen a proper burial on both sides. And then they write back at it afterwards. So uh, it's not the same, but it's kind of just um, maybe that's well, Virgil had some inspiration from that. Um, but it's it's interesting how it's treated in a sort of a complicated and nuanced way. You have this idea that well, temperance is important and rein in your passion, your emotions is important uh, for yourself and for kind of the people around you. Uh, but sometimes you also have the righteous anger. Like sometimes wrath is the right reaction. <laughs> so mm. to defend something that is sacred for you, for example, then you should also, then it's called for. So that's a, a complicated kind of balance there. But it's also, when you mentioned the Stoics earlier, there's this, um, there is this Roman thing that uh, emotion is clouding your vision in terms of politics, for example, like they, they thought compassion is a is, is sidetracking you. It, it's a, it clouds your your clear thinking. When it comes to big scale politics, you should not. You have to use reason first. And compassion is sometimes a trick that other people use to to blur your thinking. So that's kind of a very stoic mm. <laughs> um, kind of rip rip away emotions way of looking at things. Yeah, well, where for the Greeks, the emotion certainly seems to be, at least in these epics, the emotion seems to be a core. And uh, to a lesser degree, perhaps within the Odyssey, um, which is more focused on the adventure, in in my opinion, but it's the nostos, the homecoming. Yeah. Um, it, Odysseus is one of Achilles' compatriots at the war, um, but he's upset a few gods and takes longer to get home uh the the emotion seems to take its place mostly in this that justified rage um when odysseus and telemachus his son uh kill the suitors the the neighboring island chiefs essentially that Mm. were trying to take his throne and his kingdom um and Odysseus and Achilles, not Achilles, Odysseus and Telemachus have this this big battle at the end to retake their home. So it is very interesting in that there seems to be 
a role for emotions within the Greeks, exactly. whereas for the yeah. Romans, would you say the emotions are just put aside or they're valid but secondary in the Roman? I think view? it's just a, uh, being conscious of when, when, when you should have it in the picture and when you should not have it in the picture. And like the world is complicated and, and depending on what you are, like the, the topic you're thinking, like the, the activities you're doing, it's, um, it's a good question, but it like it's it's a, uh, also like it comes back to me, Cato, uh, kind of the Stoic, the 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 guardian of Mount Purgatory, is very much like, well, now at that point, it's like now that they learned about all the bad things that could happen, like all the bad choices you can make in life. So now it comes the time to learn about virtue and the vices, and then that like put all the emotions aside and and do the hard work to get somewhere. So I think it's more like compartmentalizing things as, as kind of the, one of those, the ideas there. Interesting, right? Because then even in, in paradise, it, I feel like it would become more emotional or at least spiritual in that, um, in, in that the work is done. Now yeah. it's about opening your eyes to exactly, understand yeah. more. So, there, so for Dante, there's more of a time and a place. Yeah. I think it's reflecting the, the much of the Roman in that, and then, as you said there, when when they come to the top of seven terraces, and Virgil actually withdraws as a guide, as rationality, and says, "I have nothing more to to teach you. I have taught you everything I know, and now you built up a foundation of rationality. So now, explicitly says, now you can follow your passions because you have built up the apparatus to to discern things." And to filter out what is okay to follow of passions and not to follow. So that's, um, uh, it's kind of a follow up. On, a bit earlier, they talk about reason as the threshold of consent also when it comes to emotion. But then it's even more kind of, uh, there's this maturation in it that when I got to the top there, then as you say, in the paradise, you can, then uh, your passions, emotions can be your guiding systems because you, mm -hmm. you reach that point. But the first part is essential, crucial <laughs> to have there first. Right. So, and I think because it can, so maybe there's a message of well-trained passions um, being, yeah, it's, being a guide as opposed to the crime of passion. And, and it's, it's this, um, it's the, the idea of balance again, like, you know, it's like finding the right balance between your emotion, passion and the rationality is, is a bit of the art of, of self-management and of life in, in a wider sense to learn more about how to, to, to balance this stuff and, and kind of to put it together and uh, to be constructive and helpful for yourself. And it takes, it takes years and years and it takes experience. So that's, um, and, and in Dante's world, it, it also, it helps with having guides on in that process. Mm -hmm. So, but I wanted to talk about Odysseus and the homecoming. Uh, do you see any symbolism in Odysseus' journey as life in itself and what it says about kind of where we're headed and 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 what we learn and kind of the where it's going. Definitely. Um it's there's actually a line because the Odyssey itself, it's coming secondhand from Odysseus. It's essentially the narration says how Odysseus is uh, he just escapes from uh, the the sea nymph Calypso and is 
on an island telling his his story to his hosts. So um, there there are a few interjections where the host will actually say, "Wow, Odysseus, this story it seems like it's." It's fascinating on its own, but there's a deeper wisdom here as well. And I think that in the Odyssey, my personal favorite area in it is book 11, which is Odysseus's journey to the underworld. Mm -hmm. Uh, He meets many of the heroes that were his comrades in the Iliad, but even meets Heracles, Hercules as well. and it's so interesting because you can see a number of different life paths that he could take. Um, Agamemnon, for example, has a uh, very bitter homecoming, actually. Uh, he, from Hades, speaks with Odysseus. And Agamemnon, um, a bit of a proud ego focused man, as we can tell from his anger over losing his his prize that he views this other person as. Um, but even before the war, Agamemnon had to sacrifice his own daughter to Artemis to be able to be uh, given favorable winds to get there. And when Agamemnon comes home, he's actually killed by his wife. Hmm. And so Agamemnon has the exact opposite homecoming there. Um, then he also speaks with an Agamemnon when Odysseus meets him is bitter. Um, Odysseus speaks to Achilles when he's in Hades and Achilles is, he's very sad in some ways that he, his, his battle is over. He can't fight in war anymore, but he's also, proud that his stories are still being told and hearing mm. the stories of how the Greeks continued and ended up winning afterwards. And then he meets Heracles, who is this just larger than life. It's like meeting Superman in the descriptions here. He's meeting his heroes. There's a line that when Heracles speaks to him, his words beat down on me, Odysseus says, like dark wings. Uh, just the pressure of meeting a hero, seeing these different life paths that he could take and not necessarily knowing where it's going to go. Um, But Odysseus is going home. He's trying to retake what's his. And in order to do that, he needs to control um, his men. His crew are often, many times, his biggest enemy. Uh, His crew can be gluttonous and... As a result, they're turned into pigs by a sorceress, Circe or Kirke. Um, the crew will, in jealousy, when Odysseus has the winds in a bag to make it so only the wind blowing him home is there, the crew gets jealous and tries to take it, thinking it's gold, and sets the wild tempest free. Uh, it's costing them years off the journey. And Odysseus needs to master his own men. So the aspects that he needs to control and keep in order to serve him, not be at their mercy. Um, And then also needs to, when he does get home, rise up to a challenge there. It's not just, oh good, we made it finally, but 
there are dozens of men who've been fighting for decade for a decade to, to try and win uh, his his wife's favor to become the new king. And she sets some challenges that whoever can string Odysseus's bow and then uh, shoot an arrow through a number of small rings that are targets, as Odysseus did, would be able and be worthy to have her hand to take that role. Um, so Odysseus comes back, and after all that time, he still does it. So mm. he still needs to be capable once he has things under control and then take over, might not be exactly the right word, but to reclaim that which is his, to regain his spot, show that he's still worthy in a way, still capable of defending his home after he makes it there. So I think there's certainly um, some symbolism there. And just as I mentioned, when there's the interjection, his host says, Odysseus, these words speak truly of uh, something greater and deeper than just the story. And I think that shows that very universal theme of challenges, controlling the forces that you need to be in control of, and then harnessing them skillfully with strength and cunning because Odysseus isn't the great warrior, he is the great mind. Mm. He tricks and outsmarts to be able to uh, win his battles. At the same time, he gets too proud and uh, showing off will cause himself more trouble than he maybe even avoided by using his smarts. So he certainly needs that self-control, control over those under him and control over the greater system that he has a place in, I think is very interesting and, and meets that similar to the Aeneid as well. It's like a homecoming, but to a home that, that hasn't been founded yet. Mm. There's so many deep topics there when you're talking about understanding yourself, understanding the world, managing yourself, this journey of of self, like growing self insights and then obstacles. Um, I'm just thinking about like if you if you compare the personal journeys with Achilles, uh, Odysseus, and Aeneas, uh, and also the the journey of the pilgrim, so. Uh, do you have any immediate thoughts how you can compare all these journeys and and also the journeys in the bigger picture if they have something similar? My my sense is sometimes that the Greek is much more complicated in a sense, like how all the mythologies are interconnected and there are several reasons, like myths leading up to one myth and there's several other myths coming out of it. Well, if you go to the Roman or to Dante, it's a bit more contained, but, but just if you compare the the, the journeys... Right, yes. I, th I think that for the Greeks, you're absolutely right that so many of the myths are intertwined with each other. Um, a, a lot of myths as being, especially, I mean, for Homer, these these weren't written down originally. They were stories that were not just told, but actually sung. Uh, mm. The epic poets were basically, I mean, each of these books you could think of as like a a long song. I think as far as modern uh, contemporary 
art goes. I think Rush is probably the band closest in that you can have these 20 minute songs that tell a story. And that's a bit like what some of these books would be. And they reference each other. Um, The myths will teach you some of the characteristics of the gods. And there are many things that will just be put aside as a little reference that, um, that the full stories might not be written down until, I mean, many decades, if not centuries later. Um, For example, there's one throwaway line in the Iliad that speaks of Athena as a great weaver. And Mm. uh, she weaves against Arachne. Uh, But the Arachne story wasn't, as as far as I know, I could very well be wrong on this, but at least the most famous complete iteration was written by Ovid, a Roman writer. But it it certainly seems to me that it was a story that is referenced in the earliest verbal texts here. Um, So it is also connected and there can be many, especially in the later Roman writer Ovid, he frames these myths in a big journey Mm. Uh, starting with gods and ending with men as being the focus, Uh, ending with Caesar becoming a god. Uh, But then then even back in the original oldest Greek stories that we have record of, even the ones we have are only a small part of what was a larger epic cycle. Mm. Uh, telling of the Trojan War and uh, the events before and the events after. Uh, Some of these we only know through plays that had come out centuries later in uh, classical Athens. Uh, Some of these we can only kind of guess on exactly what they may have been. Everything is so connected and gosh, I can't wait until we make some kind of amazing discovery and find some more of these so we can go even deeper into it. Mm. See how much of a cohesive narrative there may have been between them exactly so um if we just like towards the end then i'll try to translate some of this to something very practical and immediate for us today (laughs) how like are there any uh kind of simple advice that we could that could help us understand the world better now you think right absolutely big big question (laughs) yeah very very much Um, but I think it's a question that has been asked for a very long time Mm. and the answer may be different in the specifics every time, but even the oldest Western answers that we have written down in this Greek tradition Mm. are still very applicable. Um, Mm. oftentimes it's the gods that come and will give a message of, hold back or take your time to think of this or that will drive someone out of their mind and be taken over by God, like Ares, who's Mm. the the bloodlust of combat. I think that finding the right place and learning to recognize is an important thing. Um, The forces that we deal with and 
maybe we're we're lucky like Achilles and we recognize, oh yes, those gray eyes, those are Athena's gray eyes. I know that. This yeah. is the goddess of wisdom telling me something. Mm-hmm. Or maybe we just need to learn to recognize wisdom when we see it and recognize when to hold back when we see it and recognize when to not hold back, when to make a stand as Odysseus does when he's coming home. Um, There's a time for everything and a place and a proper context. And I think that overall a message from these ancient epics that's very valuable today is recognizing the right time and place for the multitude of actions we're capable of. Mm. We're very capable creatures as humans and um, learning how and when to make the most of them, I think can be very powerful for us. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really beautifully put. And uh, it, it makes, I'm still kind of struck by the relevance and when you, when you find one little bit that is relevant and, and maybe like psychological insight from some of these epics, then you connect with it and you said you can understand that somebody 2000 years ago uh, understood this dynamic of, of psychology. And then that's usually going to be a motivation to look further into it. Uh, but I also like to, the, the, the things you said now about the bigger forces. I, I mean, lately they made this example when I talk with people that, that the, like the eternal gods are often just like timeless uh, dynamics, mechanics, like the, the Icarus flying too high and, and mm-hmm. uh, like the wings, <laughs> losing his wings, like moving outside of your, your, um, your, your boundaries your, or your competence will lead to consequences. And that's, that dynamic is timeless. It will be the same. It was the same thousands of years ago and it will be the same in 10,000 years in the future. So, so in the sense like, so the gods is just symbols of things that are there and, and we can learn of like this, this dynamics. So understanding that and understanding that the gods were not kind of uh, cartoon-ish figures that they had in their fantasies and worship, but they represent something that is still here. We can still think in that language symbolically <laughs> and acknowledge, like you said, Latin, like wisdom is a force. You can have a city of wisdom like uh, Athens as the city of wisdom with the spirit of wisdom in it as a way of metaphorically describing something that makes sense and it gives you some insight in things. Uh, and then also then, in a sense, then it's, it's a bit of a stretch, but then learning more about life and the forces that are shaping your life and the world uh, is a way of getting to understand kind of those metaphorical gods a little bit better. And if you make that connection with how that language in the ancient times it just opens up to you as being present and relevant right now. So I would see that as part of this personal journey in kind of understanding what they mean and then that the gods are still here metaphorically. Absolutely. Whether or not um, whether or not we understand them in the same way that uh, Homer's audience may have, mm. it's very much something that exist um and and whether that be something we like to express through a psychological vocabulary or um that the classical authors would express through a um 
you know, recognizing this God who came down and spoke sort of vocabulary. It's um, a lot of useful wisdom within uh, in in either case, and mm. well worth reading and understanding. Exactly, and a part of that understanding also seeing your personal journey as a part of something bigger is also kind of there's almost like this recursive loop in it that when you understand the like a tradition and the context there with some of these ancient epics and see how it's relevant then you also understand your place in like a more thousand years of of history that has shaped everything up until your point and also much of the world you live in today so that's um, that's also kind of an kind of implicit part of that that journey of understanding and seeing yourself and i would just say this that I, it's in many ways a relief, I think. This depends a little bit on your age as well. But to, to see yourself as part of something bigger is in many ways more accurate. Like in concrete ways, it's, it's actually more factually right that you are. <laughs> but also that it's a, it's a relief to see the world and see yourself in that way. So, and, and maybe just to, to kind of a little bit point out and also like, and there is a balance of that, like to have, an individual sense of yourself, but also understanding the world and then and be relaxed with it that you are. And it's a helpful process. And it will also fill your life probably with more meaning if you understand this bigger context, I would say. Absolutely. So, and yeah, and I think that is in much of these old epics as well. Kind of describe much of this journey, I would say. Uh, all right, any final words? Uh, when is the first video coming? That is a good question. Um, the because the themes are really very much between the three. I'm hoping to have the first video within the next two or three weeks, and then I'm hoping that instead of the month period that's usually between them, um, to do about two or three weeks between each instead of the uh, typical four weeks or so that it takes. Um, because typically about a quarter of my time is spent doing the reading and doing the research and yeah. coming out with an outline with these, I get to get those all in at once. So I'm, uh, hmm. I'm hopeful mid to late June, we should have the first and then getting the, uh, later two to have the series done by end of July to early to mid August. All right. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I'll put the link in down in the description. And, Perfect. Um, Always uh, on Spotify, Apple, your favorite podcast platform, Mythos and Logos. Uh, that's M-Y-T-H-O-S and L-O-G-O-S. Um, you could also go online on YouTube, search Mythos and Logos, World Mythology and Religions, or just head to mythosandlogos.net, which will bring you directly to that YouTube page. Excellent. So again, Sean, thank you so much for taking the time and being with us today. And um, hope we talk again soon. And for everybody listening, thanks so much for now and see you again soon. Bye-bye.